Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is David Granardo, professor of law at the University of St. Thomas. We'll be discussing his article, Getting to the Root of the Problem, Where Are All the Black Owners in Sports, which is forthcoming in the University of Missouri, Kansas City Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. David, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. David, as I often do in these episodes, I'd like to start our conversation by maybe setting some terms or level setting a bit for listeners. This article is about ownership and race and equity in the context of professional sports. So I'd like to talk about some of the players, some of the roles in professional sports. Could you talk about the roles of the players, of the coaches, of team executives, of owners in major U.S. sports leagues, and how those roles break along racial, ethnic, and gender lines? Absolutely, Andrew. So let me start with the owners. The owners obviously own the teams, and they're also in charge of hiring the general managers, the team presidents, and the head coaches. So they have the final say on all of those major hirings. Now, the general managers, typically each major sports team employs one general manager who determines which players to draft and trade, and they sometimes also help the owner determine which coaches to hire. The team executives, I say team executives, in the article I call them LTE, league team executives, general managers, as well as team CEOs and president. So a team CEO or president usually runs the business operations of a team. And again, the owner is the one that has the final say on who to hire as a team CEO and president. And then, of course, the head coach. The head coach is the person who's in charge of the team in terms of determining which plays to run. They also usually bring in their own coaches to help them as assistant coaches in the process. And again, the owner is the one who makes the final say on who to hire as head coach. Now, the players obviously, uh, the players play, and it's different across leagues. In the NBA, the players have a lot more power One, they're all getting guaranteed contracts, and some of them are making $30, $40 million a year. And if you have one really excellent player, that person can change the destiny of a team and propel them to potentially winning a championship. Whereas in football, let's say for an example, players, obviously they don't typically play offense and defense and special teams. They're usually, they're a star player. It's either on offense or defense. So they have a lot of influence over the game and probably quarterbacks are the most influential and are paid the most and are paid also in that $40, $50 million range, the very best ones. But in basketball, they have a lot more power and players have been known to get coaches fired in the NBA because they don't like the way the coach is operating. So in in any event, though, players typically play. They do have a little bit more power in the NBA, which is part of what I talk about later on in the article as well. Just getting some statistics you asked about, where are we situated here in terms of racial, ethnic, and gender lines? 
I won't go through all of the numbers, but I'll give a brief overview. The numbers, all of them can be found in the article. In terms of owners, in the NFL, all but two owners are white. And there's two people of color who are owners in the NFL. One is the owner of the Carolina Panthers, Jaheed Khan, who is Pakistani-born and Muslim-American, and Kim Pagula, who is co-owner of the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres, who is Korean-American. There are eight female owners in the NFL, and most of them inherited the teams either from their fathers, or took over the teams after their husbands passed. In the NBA, that's where we have, when we talk about the major sports leagues, I'm talking about the NFL, the NBA, which are the two most watched sports in the United States, NHL, which is for hockey, Major League Baseball, MLB, and Major League Soccer, which is MLS. The NBA has the only black majority owner in all of the 151 major pro sports in the United States. And that individual is Michael Jordan. He is the only black majority owner of a team. You have other teams that have minority owners who own a minority state in the team that are black, but he is the only black majority owner, meaning he's the only black individual who has the final say-so in terms of pro sports. There are two other People of color, the Sacramento Kings owner, Vivek Randivi, he's an Indian American, and Mark Lazary, who's the Milwaukee Bucks owner, he's a Moroccan-born American. And then you have two female owners, Jeannie Buss with the LA Lakers and Walton Cronkey for the NBA in the Denver Nuggets. She also owns the Colorado Avalanche, by the way, just as uh, Kim Pagula also owns, like I said, the Buffalo Bills, co-owns, as well as the Buffalo Sabres in the NHL. In the NHL, you have only one person of color, and I just mentioned her, Kim Pagula, who is an owner. Then you have two female, her and then Ann Walton Kronke. Major League Baseball, there's only one person of color, Arte Moreno of the Los Angeles Angels. He's Latinx. There are no female owners currently in Major League Baseball. And in Major League Soccer, there are no people of color who are owners, and there are currently no female owners as well. Now, for the GMs, I'll go through this a little bit faster. For the GMs, the general managers, the NFL, I'll start with the NBA. The NBA has people of color. 40% of the GMs in the NBA are people of color, and 26.7% are black. In the NFL, 15.6% of the GMs are people of color. Major League Soccer, 18.8%. Major League Baseball, 13.3%. National Hockey League, 3.1%. And the Florida Marlins hired Kim Ang as their general manager. I believe she's the only female general manager in any of the major professional sports that we're talking about. Again, the NFL, the NBA, the Major League Baseball, and Major League Soccer, the MLS. In terms of team CEOs slash presidents, the NFL, people of color, 9.4%, NBA, 6.5%, MLS, 13.8%, NHL, less than 1%, and Major League Baseball, currently 0% after Derek Jeter stepped down as the Florida Marlins CEO. There are three females that have been team presidents. 
And one was the Las Vegas Raiders. The Las Vegas Raiders hired Sandra Douglas Morgan as team president. And she became the first black woman to be hired as president of an NFL team. Carolina Panthers named Christy Coleman as the team president for them. And you also had Kim Pagula, who's also an owner. She was a team president of the Bills. In terms of head coaches, the NBA actually has a very high percentage of people of color who are head coaches. 50% are black currently. MLS, 42.9% of head coaches are people of color, though only 7.1% are black. Major League Baseball, people of color who are their managers, they're called the head coaches are called managers in baseball, 20%. NFL, people of color, 18.75%. The NHL, people of color, head coaches, 0%. And there are currently no female head coaches in any of those major sports, although hopefully Becky Hammond will get a shot at this one day. And really, this is where the impetus for the article came because of all the outcry about where are all the head coaches that are black, uh, where's all the diversity, we're missing it in head coaches. And my thesis is that if you have black owners, that will result in having more black head coaches. Now, the players we have in terms of their breakdown, the NFL, and these a lot of these numbers come from Richard Lapchick, who does the reports on tides and gives all of the racial and gender numbers for a lot of these sports and then also for college as well. And in the NFL, I've seen a lot of different numbers, but the latest is people of color of the players make up 71%, 56.4% are black with 10.5%, two or more races. So you could have people who are multiracial, including part black in that number. Some of the numbers that you'll see out there is that the NFL has 70% black players. Uh, the NBA, people of color, 82.4% of the players are people of color. 71.8% are black with 8%, two or more races. Again, some of the numbers you'll see out there in the media are typically 75% of the NBA players are black. MLS, people of color, the players are 61.7%, but only 24.1% are black. Major League Baseball, people of color, 38%, but uh, only 7.2% are black. The NHL, from what I've seen, does not release statistics on the number of black players in the league. The last I saw, there were around 42 total black players in the NHL. So approximately what I've seen, less than 5%, around 5%. So I know that was a Long rundown of the numbers, and again, they can be found, these numbers, almost all of them can also be found in the article as well. Thank you for that, and it is helpful in the article that you go into even some more detail on some of these breakdowns. And one takeaway I take from that kind of high-level discussion that you offer is that with a few exceptions, when we're talking about these roles, uh, there's, particularly among owners and executives, there's a really disproportionate underrepresentation of people of color in these ownership and executive roles within the leagues. Could you talk about maybe the impact or the effects within the sports leagues and perhaps even society writ large of this underrepresentation of people of color, especially black owners and executives in these roles? What happens is when you have a lack of black owners and these top executives who are choosing whom to hire as head coaches, they tend to hire people like themselves. 
who are also not black. So there's a theory called the homologous reproduction theory, which posits that those in charge of hiring people will often choose the candidate that most represents themselves. So this theory also has been seen across the races. Studies tend to show that people tend to hire people like themselves, including racial minorities. So racial minorities tend to hire racial minorities as well. And when you have mostly white males who are the owners, who are the general managers, who are the team CEOs and presidents trying to figure out who to hire, what's happening is they're typically hiring people like themselves who are also male and white, even though we've seen, we've talked about in the leagues such as the NFL and the NBA, where you have 70% black players in the NFL and 75% black players in the NBA, yet you have a lack of head coaches and these lead team executives in the NFL. And in terms of lead team executives, you have that lack there as well in the NBA. Although the NBA is doing fairly well, even better than fairly well, they're doing extremely well in the NBA in terms of the head coaches. But you see that disparity in the leadership in terms of the owners, just like you said, the owners, general managers, and those high-level executives as well, the team CEOs and president. Are there any empirical or theoretical models that we might use for understanding or explaining why these underrepresentations exist in the leagues. You talk about perhaps applications for critical race theory in the paper. You talk about the racialized wealth inequality that exists in American society and culture. Do you maybe talk a little bit about those as potential ways for understanding the origins of this underrepresentation and these ranks? Those are great questions. So I'll start with the wealth disparity. One of the theories that I talk about in terms of explaining why this is, why do we have fewer owners who are black? Why do we have this lack of lead team executives in general managers and team CEOs and presidents, these lack of blacks in those positions? Wealth disparity, one of the reasons we have that, you could argue, is because of institutional racism. And institutional racism, just in general, it's the maintenance of institutions that systematically advantage whites. So I think probably the first place that a lot of people go to is the redlining. And I don't even, I'm not even sure I talked about, touched on it in the article, but redlining, we know, started with the New Deal. And that was started by the Federal Housing Administration where they're trying to figure out, and the Homeowners Loan Coalition, where they're trying to figure out who do we give loans to to buy houses, was a method where they were determining which neighborhoods they would not give loans to. And those red neighborhoods, so the red was hazardous. If it was redlined, it meant we shouldn't give loans to the folks in these areas. That was populated by Black residents. The yellow was declining and we're not sure if we should give the folks in these neighborhoods loans. Uh, mostly the yellow areas were bordered by black neighborhoods. The blue is still desirable and the, the green areas were the best. So that's where banks would be loaning out the money to buy houses. Well, houses obviously provide a lot of equity and allow folks to pay for a lot of things, including college education. And you can then sell those houses and then buy better houses. So. The housing market was a big part of institutionalized racism. And of course, we're talking about after slavery, which there's still effects of that as well. 
But when we talk about the wealth disparity, that was definitely a part of it. And now today, white families on average make 10 times more money than black families. The total racial wealth gap is $10.14 trillion in the United States. Speaking of housing, a study that was done in 2014 found that nearly 75% of white families lived in owner-occupied homes, yet less than half of Latinx and black families. So the institutions are set up in a way that can favor whites and that disfavor blacks and other racial minorities. Now, with critical race theory, it's such an interesting topic because it, of course, like many things, has become politicized. So some people are not too familiar with even what critical race theory is. They hear it and they're worried about it. They're scared about it. They're confused about it. So part of the article goes into just a brief history of what critical race theory is. And it's one of the things I love about researching and writing is I learned a lot about certain topics. I remember talking about critical race theory when I was in law school. And one of my professors, the late Jerome Culp, he talked about, he taught a class on these issues regarding race. But let's understand what it is. It was created, I'll just give a brief history, it's created, it really started with Derrick Bell of Harvard Law School. Derrick Bell was the first tenured black law professor at Harvard Law School. And Spencer Boyer from Howard University, they led these early foundational meetings in 1969 to discuss the exclusion of American racial minorities from the legal profession, but also express the broader concern that the bar and the Association of American Law Schools, the AALS, has been insensitive and unresponsive to the needs and aspirations of Black people. So they continued those meetings throughout the 1970s, which resulted in the formation of the AALS section on minority groups in 1973 and its first conference for racial minority law professors in 1978. And outside of the AALS, law professors of color met through the 70s and mid-1980s to discuss issues such as tokenism, the recruitment of racial minority professors and other common problems confronting minority legal scholars. So one of those meetings in 1983 led to the 1989 July Critical Race Theory Workshop at the University of Wisconsin School of Law. So ever since that workshop, critical race theory has morphed and evolved into, among other things, critical legal studies regarding a number of racial minorities. What you hear, it's funny to me when I hear on the news that some states are trying to outlaw or ban elementary schools and high schools or middle schools from teaching critical race theory. Understand that critical race theory is a graduate level theory that has six tenets, and I'll talk about just a few of them, but it's a graduate level theory that was developed by law professors, and that's typically where it shows up in law school. So when someone says that they don't want critical race theory taught in second grade, it's like saying we don't want calculus taught in second grade. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But again, I think it stems from a, just a misunderstanding of what critical race theory is. In terms of explaining why we have so few owners or just one owner that is black, that is a majority owner, principal owner of a major sports team in the United States, and why we have so few lead team executives, again, the general managers and team CEO presidents, 
and why we have so few black head coaches, we can start with the first tenet of critical race theory, which is that racism is endemic and it's an ordinary everyday occurrence. If it's an ordinary everyday occurrence, it's endemic, it's here. We see that for blacks, not having the assets to even sometimes bid on a team, that's just a common reality. We just talked about the wealth disparity. It's something that exists and it's common and there's a shortage of black billionaires. So according to Forbes, out of 2,755 billionaires in the world, only 15 are black. So the 2,755 billionaires in the world, only 15 are black. Of the 764 billionaires in the United States, only nine are black. Okay, so that can affect who even has the opportunity to bid on a franchise. And we can talk a little bit about that later. So the lack of black head coaches and LTE in sports is also explained that by this tenant because blacks are constantly being denied these positions despite their abilities and accomplishments and just being passed over for jobs that black individuals are qualified for remains a normal occurrence for blacks. So we saw this after the Super Bowl in 2021. Typically, the offensive and defensive coordinators who are participating in the Super Bowl are a lot of times those sought-after coordinators to become head coach. And there, you had a nearly all-black coordinator group in 2021 with Eric Bieniemy, who was the offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs, Todd Bowles, who was the defensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and Byron Leftwich, who's the offensive coordinator who was and still is, as is the enemy, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offensive coordinator. None of those coaches were selected as head coaches in the 2021 hiring cycle. Todd Bowles eventually earned his second coaching job, this time at Tampa Bay in 2022, when the former head coach, Bruce Arians, moved from his head coach position to the Tampa Bay front office, announcing Todd Bowles as the head coach. But that was basically an end run around the Rooney rule because that head coaching position was needed outside of the normal hiring practice. So they were able to bypass the Rooney rule and just hire the person that they wanted. This case, it was a black head coach, but we've seen that go differently in the past. In fact, we saw recently with Jim Ursay hiring Jeff Saturday, who'd never had any coaching experience in the pros. And during the middle of the season, because it's not in that regular hiring practice where they have to follow the Rooney rule, Jim Ursay just said, my friend, my buddy, Jeff Saturday is going to leave ESPN and join the Indianapolis Colts in his first coaching job in the pros as a head coach in the NFL. So that first tenant that Racism is endemic. It's an everyday occurrence. That's one of the things that could help explain this. I'll skip to the third tenet, although in the article, I go through each of the six tenets and talk about why they explain these results or what's happening today in sports. The third tenet is that race represents a social construction based on social thought and relations as opposed to genetic or biological traits. But the common physical traits that some groups share, like blacks, make up such a small part of who humans are and have little or nothing to do with distinctly human, higher-order traits 
such as personality, intelligence, and moral behavior. So that's the tenet. But what happens is, in reality, there is stereotyping. So this is what the tenet is that, hey, race is really just based on social thought and relation. What we see in the media, what we see in the news, how we see people portrayed, but not actually who they are in terms of the distinctly human higher order traits. Our personality, our intelligence, our moral behavior is not based on the color of our skin, but we have so much stereotyping and in stereotyping and biases that come into play based on these social thoughts and relations that we have those stereotypes that are out there that have affected even players in the NFL and in sports. So the stereotypes in our history that blacks are lazy, irrational, barbaric, and lacking in higher levels of intelligence have justified preventing blacks from owning multi-billion dollar teams and occupying high-level leadership positions on teams. In fact, we saw this for a long time in the NFL, in high school and college, in that Blacks were thought of as not being able to lead a team as a quarterback because they didn't have the intellectual ability to do so. All of these biases, all of these stereotypes have come into play. So not only do you have the wealth disparity that's preventing Blacks from becoming owners, but you have this thought that they couldn't lead these organizations anyway. They don't have the capacity to do that. So that's another tenant that helps explain these different, the lack of racial minorities, the lack of blacks who are in these positions. The third one and the final one I'll go through here is the fifth tenant I'll go through. That's the third one we'll be discussing here is intersectionality. Intersectionality under critical race theory acknowledges that no person has a single easily stated unitary identity. And this is pretty obvious that hopefully to those who are educated and who have had experiences and have met people, but even that, think about themselves. Someone could be, could be black, could be gay, could be a single mother, could be a feminist. Someone could be all of those things. So for me, my mom was born and raised in Poland and she's white. My dad is, was born and raised in Guyana in South America. He's black. I played football. I played college football at Rice. So I also practiced law. Now I'm a law professor. I'm a father. I'm a husband. So we have all these different things. I'm a poet. I've, I have had poetry published. As, I'm an author, as you are, Andrew. As professors, we publish our scholarship. So we are all so many different things. But what happens is that with Blacks, with racial minorities, they're placed in a box. And we've seen this over and over again. And probably... The most famous example of this is when television personality Laura Ingraham infamously told LeBron James to just shut up and dribble. You stay in your lane. Here's what you are. You are a basketball player. You are an athlete. You are nothing more. But we know that we all have different parts to our identities. We're all just more than one thing. LeBron James, of course, is a lot more, as we know, than just a basketball player. He's a successful business person. He's a founder of a school. He's a philanthropist. He's an actor. I did like Space Jam, A New Legacy, by the way. He's a father, husband, a basketball player. And you could also say he's a political activist. 
So all of these things make up who we are as individuals, but you have folks who try to put racial minorities, including blacks, into these boxes. No, you cannot be a head coach. You play. In our society, unfortunately, in our history, blacks have been seen as the entertainment. We're okay if blacks are the entertainment and the labor, but they're not cut out to be head coaches. They're not cut out to be general managers, team CEOs, presidents, and surely they're not cut out to be owners. These are the concoctions, the creations, and the boxing in and the limiting effects that the fit tenant of critical race theory is talking about. And of course, if anybody has the opportunities and we all have potentially the ability, then folks can do what they want. But when they are limited in their education and their resources growing up, it's very difficult to overcome those things. And certainly if you have these notions or conceptions or society does that people are limited in what they can do or they're only one thing, it helps to create these situations where you have so few Blacks, racial minorities in those positions that we've been talking about. Is the issue of underrepresentation in the ranks of head coaches or lead team executives or owners, is this something that the world of sports has already recognized? And if so, have leagues attempted anything to address it? And if they have attempted any efforts to address this underrepresentation problem, how have those efforts succeeded or not succeeded? That's a great question. This issue has come up with a lack of black head coaches, a lack of uh, black lead team executives. And the most prominent way that the NFL and some number of other folks in companies and business, they've used what's called the Rooney Rule. And the Rooney Rule was developed in 2003, and it came after Johnny Cochran, the late Johnny Cochran, the lawyer, and Cyrus Mary, also a lawyer. They began examining the discrepancies between white and racial minority head coaching hires and firings in the NFL. They asked the University of Pennsylvania Economics professor, Dr. Janice Madden, to do a study on the topic. And what she found was that racial minorities were hired at a much lower rate than whites, and racial minorities suffered termination much sooner than whites, particularly after outperforming their white counterparts. So they were thinking, but they didn't sue the NFL. They said they recommended that NFL teams interview a racial minority candidate before each head coaching hiring and then so the NFL created a committee headed by the late Dan Rooney, former owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, which proposed that rule, which is now known as the Rooney Rule. Now, the Rooney Rule has been revised several times. The most current version requires that teams searching for a head coach must interview at least two external candidates who are racial minorities or women, and teams must interview at least one racial minority or woman for coordinator offense, defense, or special teams is oftentimes the head coach is, is previously an offensive or defensive or special teams coordinator. Additionally, teams must interview at least one racial minority or female for executive positions, like we've been talking about, team president and general manager, and each NFL team must hire a racial minority or female to work as an offensive assistant coach. Lately, the head coaches that have been hired tend to be offensive head coaches, not all of them, but they tend to be. 
how effective has this been since the Rooney Rule's inception? Three, at the beginning of it, three NFL teams employed a black head coach. And over the years, and this number may be changing, but 27 out of 127 NFL head coaching jobs, 21% have gone to racial minorities. So we started in 2003 when the Rooney Rule was enacted with three black head coaches. Now at the start of the fall of the 2022 season, now there are three African-American head coaches. So we're at that same number. We do have three other racial minority coaches with Mike McDaniel, who's multiracial with the Dolphins, Ron Rivera, who's Latinx with the Washington Commanders, and Robert Sala, who's Arab-American with the New York Jets. So even the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, has said they've fallen short in the hiring of racial minority head coaches has been unacceptable. It hasn't been successful, although other industries, including the law, by the way, have looked at the Rooney Rule and try to use it, employ some version of it in their own hiring practices. There's also pipelines the professional leagues have created, fellowship programs that provide historically underrepresented groups opportunities to intern and work with teams to create a pipeline for head coaches of color, women, and others. But again, they obviously have not been successful to date. These proposals haven't necessarily been successful to date. I wonder if you could talk about some of the proposals that you offer in the paper. New approaches, perhaps, for rules around the cells of teams, ownership structures, etc. Could you talk about how these proposals would work, how they would address the problem, and why you're most hopeful about the potential for reform at the NBA? And I'll say... I read this article before the NBA announced some potential reforms, so I would love to hear maybe how those might intersect or line up with your proposals in this paper. At the base level, I argue, even before we get to the ownership, a revamped Rooney rule might be appropriate in line with the Mansfield rule, which is named after Arabella Mansfield, who was the first female lawyer in the U.S. The Mansfield rule, which is used by a number of top law firms, in the United States and the world, including Sullivan Cromwell, Latham and Watkins, White and Case, Paul Hastings. What that is that a certain percentage of the candidates interviewed have to be from these historically underrepresented groups. My first proposal is just revamp the Rooney Rule and require at least 50% of candidates interviewed for head coaching and these LTE positions come from those historically underrepresented groups. Because we know the data shows that more diverse candidates in the pool typically increases the chances of diverse hires. But how do we get at, again, that's not going to solve the issue. The Rooney Rule is all about you have to interview, but you don't have to hire. So in order to actually make systemic changes and have more black head coaches, we're going to need more black owners. Some of my proposals include preferring black majority owners or black majority owned investment groups in the process of selling teams and buying teams. So what this means is that one of the proposals is that the league would initially pay the difference between the highest good faith bid and the potential black majority owners bid, assuming that the black majority owners bid is lower than the highest good faith offer. And they would have paid it up to a certain percentage. Okay. So if it was 5% or 4%, then they would prefer the black majority owner's bid over the other bid. The new team owner, the black majority owner, would have to repay that over time. 
So for example, this would be a very cheap team, by the way, for the NFL standards. But if a white potential owner bid $2 billion for a team and a black potential owner bid $1.6 billion, then the league would pay the $400 million difference initially. But then the black majority owner would repay the league the $400 million over an extended period of time. And I give in the article such as 10 years. Or another option, the owners would prefer and accept a, a bid for ownership for a black majority owner if the bid is simply within a certain percentage of the top good faith bid. So again, if it's a $2 billion bid, that's the highest good faith bid, and the black bidder is making a bid within 5%, which would be $1.9 billion, then the selling owner would be obligated to sell to the black bidder at that price. Also, in conjunction with these, or alternatively, an investment fund comprised of contributions from players, owners, and league sponsors could be set up to generate the necessary assets to cover the differences between the highest good faith bid and the preferred black bid, assuming, of course, that the black potential owner's bid was lower than the highest good faith bid. Also, some other rules that have been thought of and I talk about as well in the article, reducing the percentage stake that the principal franchise owner needs to own, which is currently 30% in the NFL. Understand that if a potential owner, a black owner, ready owner, wants to own an NFL team as the principal franchise owner, they need to put up 30% of the purchase, a team that costs just $3 billion. And that's on the lower end of current NFL team value. So the Cincinnati Bengals, they are estimated to be valued at $2.84 billion. They're the lowest. The Dallas Cowboys, they're the highest right now, $7.64 billion. So we're talking about the lower end. At $3 billion, that means a principal owner would have to put up $900 million. So there are very few individuals and certainly very few black individuals who could even put up that $900 million. So reducing the percentage that stake that the principal franchise owner needs to own, that would be a good start. Increasing the amount that private equity firms could own in a sports franchise while allowing a principal black owner to retain control of the team would help significantly as well. And we saw the NBA saying that now a private equity firm can own 30% of a team. That's uh, rules that have been proposed. I believe that they're going to be enacted soon. I'd have to check on that, but that's what it's calling for now. Maximum equity a franchise can sell to external funds is 30% and it will permit the NBA sovereign wealth funds, endowments, and pensions to acquire passive stakes in the league's franchises that in conjunction with then lowering the percentage that the principal franchise owner needs to own could actually help black owners become majority owners. Okay. Now you had Deion Sanders at one point say, you want to increase diversity at the coaching level, start three expansion teams in the NFL and mandate black ownership. Then you would get more head coaches who are black. Again, he's saying, add some teams, make sure they have black ownership. That would be a short solution, but having a system where black owners are preferred, that's the solution that I propose. It's an, an institutional type of reform because this is an institutional issue. This is something that's going to take a great deal of change in order for this to come about. And the biggest issue is why would any of these folks give up control? Because those in power must give up some or all of their power to allocate the, to blacks to gain 
power, to gain ownership and to prosper financially, why would anybody do that? Because then again, so they wouldn't be able to transfer it to their spouses. They wouldn't be able to pass it down to their sons and daughters. Why would they do that? Social pressure from league executives, players, and fans might serve as the impetus to precipitate these changes. After the murder of George Floyd, we have seen structural changes to institutions, academic, and businesses. And now we have the creation of these DEI committees and departments throughout the United States, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We also saw with the Washington commanders how their previous name of their mascot changed, not after the fans got upset, not after there were protests, but when the sponsors said, we're going to start pulling our money out of the Washington team, which had then become the Washington football team. When the sponsor said, we're not going to give you money, then Washington football team said, all right, we'll change the name. So pressure from a lot of different areas as society continues and hopefully to change, that could be the impetus. So why the NBA? So Adam Silver, he was somebody who came early to the party for a lot of things. So one, the gambling space. So he was the first among major sports to move to have teams also sell Jersey patch ads. He came out in the New York Times with his position that we should legalize betting. He said, let's have the patch ads on the jerseys, which again, raises money for the NBA. And the NBA was the first to allow private equity funds to buy into teams. Now, we also know that they've been quite progressive in terms of social justice issues after the murder of George Floyd as well. The NFL, on the other hand, they're always Johnny come lately. The NFL did not make changes to its domestic violence policy until it saw a video of Ray Rice punching his then fiance. It didn't change its concussion protocol until there was a movie and a lawsuit that brought these issues to light. They didn't acknowledge that they should have supported players pursuit of fighting racial injustice and police brutality until they saw the video of George Floyd being murdered and the current stars of the NFL pleading for the NFL to finally take a stand. And if NFL didn't say that they were going to use independent experts to increase the number of racial minority head coaches hired in its league until they were sued by Brian Flores. And he also sued the NFL and three NFL teams for, among other things, their alleged discriminatory hiring and firing practices. The NBA would make a much better candidate for changing the way that owners are determined and the rules for doing so as opposed to the NFL. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview and from your article? It's a great question, Andrew. One of the things is that why are we looking at this in sports, the issue of institutional racism or systemic racism? Because it also typically sports will mirror what's in society. The lack of black head coaches and LTE exists in sports. We've seen this with Fortune 500 companies. In the history of Fortune 500 companies, there have only been 19 black CEOs. To remedy these injustices that we've seen that are embedded in society, there needs to be bold and significant changes to address these institutional problems. It is a lot, and this is going to shake up the system. But typically, that's the only thing that's going to allow us to make systemic institutional changes. And it's going to require, as I say in the article, cooperation, creativity, and a never-ending sense of hope. Our guest today has been David Granardo. 
professor of law at the University of St. Thomas. We've discussed his article, Getting to the Root of the Problem, Where Are All the Black Owners in Sports, which is forthcoming in the University of Missouri, Kansas City Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. David, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.